from the book of Colossians, chapter 4, and verses 2 through 6. It's part of our continued sermon series uh, in Paul's letter to the Colossians. From verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is the word of the Lord. have a stuffy nose and a lower voice this morning, and I don't have a week-long camp staying up late with kids as an excuse, so I feel a little bad for that, but bear with me, please. Um, would you pray with me as we walk into God's Word? Oh, Father, we speak, and it is but dead air that falls on ears, but you speak, and life springs forth, Lord. You spoke, and every beast and tree and bird and human being that is came into being You speak and you enliven our dead hearts. Speak to us now as we come to your word. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under it, that we may pay attention to it. Be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So just a few weeks ago, we celebrated the 4th of July, um, which I assume you all noticed, which is great. I love it. My kids love it, right? You watch parades and you grill hamburgers and you shoot off fireworks Well, apparently in Illinois, you don't really shoot off fireworks. Um, Unlike Nebraska, where I'm from, all that you can shoot off is these kind of smoke boxes that that, that all have different names, trying to riff off being, making smoke, like Smoke Factory and Mummy Smoke and The Smoke Box, Um, all of which sound kind of questionable, actually, but I'm getting getting sidetracked. Anyway, um, the 4th of July, um, we celebrated it, but as fun as it is, it's also something that seems unusually meaningful, I know, to a lot of it. Why is that, right? I don't think that it's just because of the pounds of candy thrown off of floats or the kids running around with inflatable machine guns painted like the American flag, right? Those things are all fun, but that's not what speaks to us about the holiday. The reason many people connect with the fourth, I think, is that it connects them to something larger than themselves, So the 4th of July, right, is this holiday where we kind of think about certain ideas like freedom or that all men are created equal. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And the 4th is about this story that we tell, right, a story about fighting tyranny and dreaming of justice. And the 4th reminds us that we're part of this community of people, somehow these people that are Americans together, that are connected with each other. And it reminds us that we have this shared history, right? Somehow when we talk about George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, we're not just naming random historical figures, but somehow that people that feel like founding fathers to us. That The holiday has meaning because it connects us to something larger than ourselves. Way back at the end of Colossians 1, Paul starts talking about his ministry and the spread of the gospel in the world. And as much as he is writing to this church in Colossae and dealing with specific issues that they have, he's also talking to them 
as part of something larger, part of a larger mission. As he finishes his letter, Paul returns to this theme, and he calls the Colossians' attention back to this larger story that they're a part of. We as Christians are part of something larger than ourselves. Scripture constantly reminds us of it. It is about ideas that we share, truths of the gospel and the work of Christ. Christianity is about a story, a narrative about God breaking into the world in Jesus and redeeming us from our sins, setting us free, calling us to peace. It reminds us that we are a part of a bigger community, this worldwide community of brothers and sisters from every tribe and tongue and nation, and that community also has a shared history, a history founded on the work of our Heavenly Father and grown through the labor of the saints. There is this temptation for us as Christians turn inward, to make the story about us, about the people just sitting in the pews next to us on a Sunday morning. And those things are important, the health and holiness of our kind of internal community. Paul has spent a bunch of time in this letter to the Colossians dealing with those things, right, calling this church to pursue that. But as he closes, Paul's reminder is that this inward focus is always meant to turn outward for us as the church. It's to turn towards God and this larger work he's doing in the world. So this morning, I would like us to look outward as well and think about our place in God's larger story. God is on a mission in the whole world. He is building his church in Stillman Valley and in Chicago and in Uganda and China and Palestine and Peru, and we are called in a real way, to be a part of that. But how? What part are we to play? Well, I think Paul here, as he closes his letter, gives two answers. He tells the Colossians and us that we're to pray for the gospel in the world and that we're to gossip the gospel in our worlds. Pray for the gospel in the world and gossip the gospel in our worlds. And we'll get to those in a minute. But before we get to any of that, I think we need to kind of draw a distinction in our minds, right? Paul, when he starts talking about his mission and the cause of Christ in the world, um, when we start talking about being outward-focused, I think we naturally start to imagine sort of people not like us doing things not like us, right? Missionaries, say, or evangelists. And that's not bad, because those people are a part of what Paul is talking about. But that can lead us to some problems. So when we talk about missionaries, for example, we often mean people who go somewhere far away to minister for Jesus, right? Usually that go to another country, which is wonderful. We as a church partner with people in Africa and China to serve Jesus. Or maybe it includes people in the U.S., but in places not like this one, right? Missions happen in inner cities or, I don't know, those pagan tribes in Hollywood or something like that. But in Scripture, mission happens everywhere. God is on a mission to expand his kingdom in the hearts and minds of all people, including the people that we interact with on a daily basis. We picture missions in terms of this world, right? We go out from here, here being, I don't know, America or Illinois or Stillman Valley, to there, to those places where people need Jesus. But the biblical picture is different. We are all, in the biblical picture, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are all ambassadors for a nation that is right now invisible 
and will not visibly appear until Jesus comes back, which means that Jesus needs ambassadors, he needs missionaries of that invisible kingdom in our neighborhoods just as much as he does in Nigeria or Peru. We are all a part of God's missionary calling. Which doesn't mean that there isn't a special need for people to fulfill this calling by going out there, all right? Going to the far corners of the world, there is a special need for those people, but not because those people are somehow different or more a part of God's mission. And I want to say that up front because I think we can too often conclude when we start hearing Paul talk about God's kind of ministry and mission and work in the world that that those discussions are about other people, right? They're for other folks than us. Um, but, but that's not true. In this text, Paul is telling us all two things that we are responsible for as a part of God's mission. We are all responsible for praying for the gospel in the world and for gossiping the gospel in our worlds. So let's look at each of those in turn. First, we are to pray for the gospel in the world. So in verse 2, Paul gives this a general call to devote yourselves to prayer. Right? Devote yourselves to it, which means right up front that it's something hard that we're being called to work on. I don't have to devote myself to eating ice cream or to watching television. And Paul's call to prayer, it includes all kinds of prayer. Right? When we pray, we are to praise God, we're to pray and confess our sins. When we pray, we are to ask for things for ourselves and for others and give thanks for things that God gives us. Those are all part of what we should be devoted to. But even in verse 2, Paul seems to have the sense, especially that the prayer he's thinking about is outward-focused prayer. So he says that we should be watchful and thankful in prayer. So we should pray with our eyes open, looking around for things to pray for. And then in verse 3, Paul especially asks for prayer for himself and others who are engaged in this missionary work, this evangelistic work that he's doing. First, he prays that God would open a door for his message. And um, that might just mean what we talk about when we talk about God opening a door, right? That Paul is asking these people to pray that people, you know, he would encounter folks whose hearts were open and whose ears were kind of open and were interested in hearing about Jesus. I think Paul, though, probably means something more specific. Just after this request, he mentions his chains, Right? It's easy to forget in these kinds of letters, but Paul right now is in prison for preaching the Christian message. And I can't help thinking that when he prays for an open door, what he's especially picturing is the door of his cell that he's sitting and staring at. Right, And so in particular, what Paul in first is calling us to pray for is for the physical situation of those sharing Christ all over the world. That we should pray for their freedom and protection and provision and safety. In addition, in verse 4, Paul asks for prayer that we might proclaim the mystery of Christ clearly, as he should. For Paul, there's a power in the gospel. It isn't just a clever presentation or slick branding or something that makes the difference. Those things can all help open doors, but it's the message of Christ's death and resurrection that alone has power to change hearts. So we should be praying for the message of missionaries and evangelists and those in the world, praying that they might consistently point to Jesus and communicate him to all of those to whom they are sent. 
Before we talk about putting that first step into practice, I think there's something that needs to be acknowledged, all right? That, call, that first call Paul gives for us to pray for the gospel in the world, that can sound kind of uninspiring to us. At least that has often sounded uninspiring to me. It's like when the missionary comes and shares at church, I can feel like he's saying, look, you could come and be a missionary, and that sounds exciting. Or you could give and support my mission, which is less exciting, but I'm still like, okay, or you could pray for us. At least that's how I sometimes felt growing up in the church and hearing those sorts of messages. But that is not how Paul views this call to prayer. He repeatedly refers to churches praying for him as partners in his ministry. He uses that language in Philippians 1.5 and Philemon 17. And he doesn't mean because they're somehow out on the mission field with him. He doesn't even mean because they're financially supporting him. He simply means that because in prayer they are lending him a sort of help and aid that he needs. Our prayers are powerful and indispensable. I know of no better way to illustrate that than with a story that I heard about David Livingston, who was this missionary in Africa. And David Livingston, as he went there and explored and traveled and worked there um, and was a missionary there, uh, he ran afoul of certain tribes that did not like the idea of, you know, these missionaries coming and sharing the gospel. And in particular, one very violent tribe he learned on January 14th of 1856 had been tracking his group of people through the jungle and were getting ready to attack and kill them all that night. And he writes in his journal that night, evening, felt much turmoil of spirit in view of having all my plans for the welfare of this region and teeming population knocked on the head tomorrow. Ultimately, though, in that journal entry, Livingston ends up saying, okay, I'm going to trust the Lord, though. And nobody attacks that night. Later on, that tribe, some of the leaders of that tribe were actually brought to Christ, and Livingston asks the chief about that night. He says, so we had heard this, that you were tracking us through the jungle and that you were going to kill us all. And the leader of this tribe says, yes, that was true. And Livingston says, so why didn't you attack? And he says, well, we, we actually came out to attack you, and as we approached the camp, we saw 47 warriors surrounding it with drawn swords, and so we turned aside and didn't attack. And Livingston didn't have armed guards or anything like that for this band. But he said, okay, this is the Lord's providence. That's, that's incredible. And gave thanks and went on with it. Later, while on furlough in Scotland, David Livingston shared this story as part of his kind of stump speech as he went from church to church raising support for his mission. And at one of the churches that had been supporting him, he, you know, he shared this story. And afterwards, a member of this church comes up to him. Um, and this, this Scottish man, he's waving this book around, which is his prayer journal, and he points out to David Livingston there, dated January 14th, 1856, that he and some men from the church had felt led to pray for Livingston's expedition that they were supporting. And so that night, 47 men gathered and prayed for David Livingston's protection. And that is the picture that we need to have in our heads when we think about prayer, right? Not of us sort of uselessly doing this this sort of consolation prize, but of, of some men in Scotland, right, sitting with their heads bowed and their hands folded praying, and 47 men with bare swords standing in defense around this missionary's camp. That that is what we're called to do for Christ's mission in the world. So our prayers are powerful, and effective.
That said, when we think about living out this call to pray for the gospel in the world, prayer is also something that we have to devote ourselves to. It's one of those central things we're called to do as Christians that many of us struggle with, right? We struggle to pray, not just for the cause of Christ in the world, although that's Paul's specific application, but in general. And before anything else, if that's you, know that you aren't alone. There are a few saints who are blessed with this naturally deep um, prayer life, a few, but most Christians I know struggle to have consistent rhythms of prayer. I struggle to have consistent rhythms of prayer. And honestly, I can only use the word struggle in the last few years, as before that it was probably didn't at all (laughs) have consistent rhythms of prayer. All right? So if that's you, know that that's probably most of the other people here this morning, too. So don't kind of spiral into guilt, but do seek to pray. Prayer is an important thing that we all are called to grow in. Maybe, maybe just let me give a few practical ways to think about that, right? Practical ways to grow in those rhythms of prayer as we struggle to. First of all, make a plan to pray. It doesn't have to be much. In fact, if you don't have a daily rhythm of prayer, it shouldn't be much, right? You shouldn't decide that you're going to spend two hours a day in prayer if you're not doing it at all now. That's, that's not a good idea. But set aside five or ten minutes in the day to pray. Make a plan for it. And make a plan for some things to pray for, right? Even if it's just a little list in a notebook. Your family members, your friends, your church. If you want to be praying for the gospel in the world, as we're talking about this morning, I actually printed off um, Operation World has the 60 days of prayer sheet, and I stuck some of those on the back table by that door. That's, you know, it gives you a country each day. You can just go to their website if you want information about that country, but pray for the missionaries and people serving Christ and sharing the gospel there. But make a plan and set aside some time for prayer, right? Lots of people do that in the morning. Um, It's also helpful to maybe set aside a space to pray because um, doing it while you brush your teeth and shower in the morning is not often that effective. Maybe you go to your kitchen table or sit out on the porch. Maybe the only really practical thing I'd say is don't make that place your bed because that just doesn't work. (laughs) Um, So set aside some space and time for prayer. Maybe even find a friend or two to pray with you. Probably not every day unless they're better friends than the ones I have, but once a week or something. You, You go and you get coffee and you just spend a little time praying. Most importantly, though, and this goes back to talking about it being a struggle, don't give up and don't be discouraged when you fail. I feel like what happens a lot of times when we're challenged to prayer is that we say, okay, and we go make a plan and we set aside some time and maybe we get some friends to do it occasionally and it goes great for like a week or two, right? And then you skip a day or you skip one of your get-togethers with your friends and then you do a couple more days and then you skip another two and pretty soon you feel like you failed and you give up. I think our tendency when this happens is to conclude that we might as well not try that we just aren't cut out for this praying thing. And that's understandable, but that's the opposite of what we actually need to do. Jesus doesn't just delight when we're succeeding in prayer. He is also delighted when we fail, but keep trying, even if it happens over and over again. As a seminary professor I used to have said in another topic, blessed is the man who never stops restarting family devotions. And the same is true of prayer. Or if I could just put it another way, the preacher Jack Miller 
I remember sharing this illustration about Samuel Johnson, who was this Christian Puritan and literary giant from the 1700s. And Johnson concludes as a young man that he needs to pray more and that his problem is that he needs to get up in the morning and pray. And so he decides to do this. He resolves in 1738 in his journal, O Lord, enable me to redeem the time with which I have spent in sloth. And so he resolves to rise early in the morning and pray. Okay? And that sounds great. Then you keep reading his journal. In 1757, 19 years later, he writes, O mighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by diligently application of the days yet remaining. And then, in 1759, two years after that, enable me to shake off idleness and sloth. And then in 1764, my indolence since my last reception of the sacrament has slunk into the grossest sluggishness. I love Puritan writing, by the way. My purpose is from this time to avoid idleness and to rise early and pray. And then in 1764, five months later, he again resolves to rise early, no later than six if I can. And then in 1765, I am not yet in a state to form any resolutions. I purpose and hope to rise early in the mornings by eight and degrees by six. (laughs) And then, 1775, when I look back upon um, resolution of improvement and amendments of which year after year have been made and broken, why do I yet try to resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair criminal. And he again resolves to rise at eight. And then in 1781, six years after that and three years before his death, I will not despair. Help me, help me, oh my God. He resolves to rise at eight or sooner to pray and avoid idleness. That is what Christian faithfulness really looks like. Faithfulness is in prayer and in everything we do. It's not not failing. It is failing, but then resolving once again to pursue Christ. As Johnson so beautifully puts it, I try again and again because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. That we're not judged for arriving, but we will be judged and called blessed when we rise after we fail. So we're called to pray for the gospel in the world. That's half of what Paul's calling us to do, each of us. Then the other half is that he wants us also to gossip the gospel in our worlds. And I know that gossip the gospel is a weird term, so bear with me for a minute and we'll get there. So Paul sees two parts of our kind of calling in our worlds, right? First, in verse 5, he calls us to be wise in the way we act towards outsiders. It's just a truth that how we behave matters just as much as what we say when we're talking about and sharing Jesus. If we profess the name of Jesus, that is meant to alter our lives, and there should be a love and a graciousness that shows because of that. In particular, Paul says that we're to make the most of every opportunity. And that's not a separate thought. He's connecting it to the way that we treat people, which means that Paul's inviting us to see every interaction with somebody as an opportunity, a chance to share Christ's love and kindness and grace. This turns our usual way of thinking on our head. It's not that we have to be loving or gracious. It's that we get to. We're given opportunities to show that to the world. And then in verse 6, we're called to have conversations that are full of grace seasoned with salt. 
being full of grace is really another way of getting back to the things Paul said in chapter 3 about not slandering people or being abusive in our speech, but rather being gentle and humble. Our speech should reflect the gospel, and then it should be seasoned with salt, that Jesus and our hope in him are naturally a part of our conversations. Salt is an image for the good news of the gospel throughout the scriptures. And it's not that we force him in everywhere, right? It's not that our conversations need to be coated with salt, but it is that they should be seasoned with him, because then we are to know how to answer everyone, Paul says. Which means first that Paul expects that we're going to be asked. It's not that we go around trying to engineer conversations about Jesus, right? It's not looking at that person next to you on the airplane who's clutching the arms of their seats and saying, if this plane went down right now, do you know where you would spend eternity? (laughs) Um, It's that we live in a way and talk in a way that has Jesus at the center. And then as the topic arises and people are curious, we share our hope in Christ with them. Which strikes me because it's a very natural way of talking about our calling in evangelism. Paul isn't telling each of you that you have to go around preaching the gospel all the time. Jumping up on tables and kind of yelling at people, right? Making signs and then standing on street corners. He isn't telling us to force Jesus into every conversation. Man, this cinnamon roll is sweet. And you know what else is sweet? Knowing Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior. But Paul is saying that we are to live our lives in ways as Christians that show Christ and then to acknowledge in our speech that we are Christian and then that Christ will naturally come up because of those things and then we are to speak of him. So the best analogy I can think of for that sort of picture of sharing the gospel is gossip which is why I used it to to describe it. That it's not something forced, but it is as natural, although much better, than the gossip that we share in conversations with people. That we should be gossiping the gospel. I mean, when you think about it, we are all evangelists for all kinds of things, right? What happens when you go see a great movie, or you hear a really great album, or... I don't know, you buy a really nice set of golf clubs, depending on what you're into. What happens when you're really passionate about some hobby or some sport? You try to introduce other people to it. You tell other people about it, right? I know I do that. Even when people aren't interested, I get really excited about something, and I feel like I just have to tell them about it. The gospel should work more like that. We're called to share Jesus with people, but not in some forced or artificial way. Instead, we should share him with them in the same way we share one of our favorite songs or our hobbies, that it should happen naturally, a sharing of something we consider beautiful and important. How do we do that in practice? What does that look like? Well, first, I think Paul would remind us that we should behave towards others in a way that models the gospel. Our behavior is a part of evangelism. And in some ways, I think that can be something that we already know. I remember growing up in the church, these lectures about hurting your witness, about how certain behaviors, if people see them, will hurt the message of Jesus. And there's a seed of truth in that, right? Doing bad things to people and then trying to share the good news with them is not very effective. But that can get really skewed if that's all we think that Paul means. Part of the problem with that hurting your witness approach is that it encourages you to fake it, right? 
to just pretend like you're a better person than you are, which is not something that Scripture recommends. More than that, we are all sinners, and if our witness somehow depends on me not being a sinner, then the cause of Christ is doomed. Most of all, though, as Paul is emphasizing through this letter to the Colossians, the root of Christian faithfulness lies primarily not in avoiding things, but in doing and living out certain things. So what Paul is calling us to do is not simply something negative, just avoiding some stuff. What Paul is calling us to do is something active, to make the most of every opportunity, to look for opportunities to show Jesus to the people we encounter. Which means, quite simply, that the heart of our calling is to show the gospel to people with our actions. Show the gospel to people. So what does that look like? It means that we make friends with people. We do kind things for them. We look for unexpected opportunities to do kind things. We're gracious with them. We speak well of them. We refrain from slander. We forgive them. And when we sin, we repent. And we say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And we mean it. That sort of behavior, far more than just avoiding a few things, is going to blow people's minds when you do it. It turns heads and raises eyebrows. It makes people ask, what is up with you that you would be so loving and generous and forgiving and kind? And that's when the second thing that Paul talks about comes in. When people ask, we offer the gospel as our answer. There's a careful balance here, right? As much as, as we've said, Scripture doesn't picture evangelism for most of us as street corner preaching or something forced, it is something that we're called to talk about. As 1 Peter 3.15 puts it, always be prepared to make an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have, to be prepared to explain our hope. As true as it is when St. Francis says, preach the gospel continually, use words when necessary, as true as it is, words will eventually become necessary. And I know that that is intimidating to a lot of us. How do we share the gospel with people? We might feel like we lack the words to say. So again, let me offer a few thoughts. First, it's okay to be yourself when you're evangelizing, when you're sharing the gospel. You know Jesus. You love him, you walk with him, you've experienced him in your life, so it's okay to talk about those things. Talk about them in ways that are natural to you. Second, when those opportunities arise, focus on the gospel. You don't have to have the answers for every question people have. The answer that you are called to have is what your hope is that is in you. It's the gospel of Christ. It's his death and resurrection and the grace and welcome and new life that he offers. So focus on that when those conversations come up. And if you want more practical thoughts on sharing your faith, we're doing an adult Sunday school on it that starts this week. And so you would be welcome to join us for that. Funny how those coincidences happen. But, but after all those practical ideas, just remember that God is with you when you go out into doing that. He is the one who changes hearts, and his spirit lives inside of us and guides us as we walk through that process. As we close this morning and we finish thinking about this text, let me offer one final 
question that I think lies behind this whole discussion. Many of us as Christians, I think we tend to view this call, right, to to gossip the gospel, to talk with people about Jesus, whether it's in our neighborhoods or in the world, as this sort of dry duty. It's not very appealing. And if you're here this morning and you aren't a believer, I'm sure that you feel like it's a not very appealing prospect. Um, But there's a reason that Paul calls us to do it, all right? There's a reason that he wants to see this gospel preached in the world and that he wants to see us be willing to share and talk about this gospel as we interact with people. And it isn't just because we're supposed to, and it isn't just because he wants new converts or something. Instead, in verse 3 of our text, Paul summarizes the ministry that he's doing as proclaiming the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. What is that? Well, back in chapter 1, verse 27, he talks about that mystery. He He talks about the richness and glory of that mystery. And then he says that what that mystery is, is Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory. What Paul is calling us to proclaim is that Jesus has come and united himself to us, that his spirit is living in us, that we as human beings can have intimate, beautiful relationship to the God of the universe, that we can live in communion with him, that he covers our failings and forgives our sins and they are hidden, and that we can experience welcome and life as we walk with him. That is what God is doing in the world, overcoming all of the brokenness, everything that's sad and dark, and creating a new heavens and new earth. And so that gospel that we bring, that mystery of Christ, that is good news. That is the kind of thing that's worth sharing, the kind of story worth telling. We need to stop picturing this call to share Christ with people as a dry duty and instead realize that we are sharing a delight, that we are delighting in these beautiful promises and this beautiful message and that we get to share it with the world. So let's pray for that gospel to go forth into every corner of the earth and let's freely speak of it and gossip it as we walk forth into our worlds because this is a rich and glorious mystery that Christ has given us to share. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father God, I do pray for all those who are faithfully following you in every corner of the earth. I feel like every week I see some news of some people suffering, struggling, being persecuted, seeking to be faithful to you. So I pray that you would be near to all of them. I pray for all of those that we support and know and all those that we don't are proclaiming Christ in the world, that you would be with them. And Jesus, I pray for us, for me, that we, as we walk with those around us, might show Christ's love to them in our actions, and that we, as they ask and their hearts are opened, might share Christ's love with them, with the hope that they too might experience salvation and washing and renewal in life. Pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, whose mystery we proclaim. Amen.